welcome to Resilience Unraveled. I'm your host, Dr. Russell Thackeray. This podcast is a result of my fascination with health issues, resilience, performance, mental health, accountability and critical thinking, along with many of the other obsessions I bump into in my life. I spend my time working with highly successful teams, organisations and people, and this podcast introduces their remarkable stories, as well as my synthesis of the key issues, tips and strategies to thrive in life. If you find this podcast useful, you can also find other information at qedod.com or russellthackeray.com. Stay tuned to the end for details of how to order a free ebook. Enjoy the podcast. So today I'm talking to Tracy McAtamney. Hi, Tracy. Hi there. Nice you, to speak to you, Russell. And you. It's been, I know we've had some fun and games trying to arrange this, so it's really um, great that we've managed to hook up at last. And thank you for spending some time with us to talk about um, both your book and a really fascinating subject. Yes. Um, well, it's, it basically is resilience. Um, and I think um, my book, um, it, it's something that, that is, is really what happened 15 years ago. But it's only now I feel um, that I can talk about it and that it can benefit other people. Fantastic. So, but the first thing I notice is that you've got a British accent, which is quite nice for my audience. So tell me more about where you are today. Okay, so I'm in Borsal Common, which is not far from Stratford-upon-Avon. Oh, very posh. Uh, probably about 15 minutes away. Um, and that's, um, and I'm looking out, I'm in my office and looking out over a lovely green garden at the moment. Very good. Well, it might be, um, I might be underwater in a few minutes because apparently we've got flash floods on the way. So good luck with that. Okay, where are you exactly? <laughs> I'm near Southampton. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> so we might both be submerged. Yeah. They might be heading my way then. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm very taken by um, the sort of introduction to your book, and, it's, and it, it starts by saying, how do you tell a seven-year-old that his daddy is never coming home? And I think that's, I mean, you know, I read that one, wow. I mean, that's, that's quite a question. And actually, you know, how on earth do you do that? So take us back, take us back all those years ago, Tracy, and tell us, tell us what was going on. So 15 years ago, my, my husband, Tony, who uh, was a solicitor, and he was away playing golf for the Law Society in Spain. Um, he was, the reason we were not there as a family was because my, my son, who was 15, was doing his final exam, and uh, he was due to go away with his friends the following day. So life was normal for us. I was helping run the practice, have a seven-year-old. Everything, everything was going well. Um, so one o'clock in the morning, I receive a phone call. Um, there's no alarm bells, there's no police sirens. It's just a phone call. And for some reason, um, the, the man that called me was, is called Brian. And I didn't know him very well, but I knew he was with my husband. And uh, he just said my name. He just said Tracy. And uh, to that response, I just said, um, he's dead, isn't he? Wow. Um, I have no reason why I said that. I, it had it just it just came out, and um, I mean, 15 years ago, people really didn't use mobile phones. Um, I had one, but um, so it, it, I think it was the fact my mobile phone had gone at that time in the morning. Um, but sleeping in the bed next to me was my seven-year-old because he always said, "When Daddy goes away, I'm going to sleep with Mummy." So, um, and it was a little bit of a joke, and. Uh, um, I had to get myself out of the room um, to make the phone call back to Spain and um, find out the details. But immediately, I mean, I was, the, the shock of the call, I couldn't breathe. Um, I actually felt like I'd been punched in the chest. It was, 
And I think it was automatically, how, how am I going to tell my boys? And in particular, how am I going to tell my seven-year-old? Mm. Um, and, and, uh, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because they often talk about the, the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross grief model. And the first stage is shock, isn't it? Yeah. And, and yeah. You, you describe that really. It's a very interesting way to describe that. It's really powerful. But it's interesting that you're, you, you were very practical in the next step. So, and I, I guess you had no choice other to be practical, did you? Well, you know, I didn't have a choice. And I think that's what I knew, that I had no choices other than I had to tell the boys and I had to tell them straight away. Well, my my older son was actually packing his suitcase with his friend in the next bedroom, which was really sad. Um, They were still chatting at one in the morning and um, I had to break the news to him. Um, and and really, it just I just I think I just babbled it out. It just it came out of my mouth. There was no other way to tell him. And you know, he was fantastic. He just you know we just hugged and and his friend. I think his friend was the one that was more distressed than than you know both of us. And um, and it was just this surreal situation. Um, the other thing was my mum at that point lived in we have a granny flat attached to the house and my mum lived in the granny flat so I knew she was the next person I had to wake up and and inform Um, and the the, the sad thing about that is that um, when I knocked the door and sort of I I didn't want to frighten her obviously she was a lady in her her 70s and she um, when I told her she just burst into tears which was not something I expected um, and I'll explain that a little bit further and um, when I sadly when I was seven my, my own father died um, he fell down the stairs in an accident and broke his neck so my mum had been left with two daughters one one of seven which was myself and my sister who was 10 so my mum had been through it and for me I'd never seen my mum cry my mum had never my mum would always you put your lipstick on you, you know it it will be fine and um and she wasn't. I think it was all too much for her, and it was not the it was not the response I expected. So I knew I knew immediately I was in trouble. If my mum if my mum had fallen into part, then I, you know I knew I now had to be the strong one. <clears throat> and that must be. Um, I mean, the echo from your from your mum must have been horrific, wasn't it? And and I guess interesting as well the difference in the generations about. Yes. You know, the sort of dealing with these things. I mean, very much in the modern day thing now is, you know, we talk about our feelings and we sit around and such like. And I'm guessing for her generation, it was very much would just, you know, just get on with it. It, it was. It, it was. And I, and I think I was able to draw on some of those things. Um, and um, was that I remembered as a seven year old that my mum hadn't told me an awful lot. I didn't really even know my dad had died. Um, I remember there being a coffin and I can remember her squeezing my hand. And I didn't really understand anything about the funeral. Um, and I just remember being frightened. And so I, I made a conscious decision almost immediately that night that things had to be different for, for Oliver in particular, that was seven, that, that you know, he needed, he needed more information. I needed to be deal with it differently. Um, having said that, my mum my was a fantastic mother. And as I say, she brought us up to be, you know, she protected us with her lives and uh, with her life. And, and we were her priority. Um, but I just think it was all too much when it happened again, and it it was out of her control this time. Um, but I was very lucky because she was here and she was at the house, so I, you know, she, she was there as a support, sort of ongoing. Um, so going back to then Oliver, I, you know, we're still only talking two in the morning. Um, I'm bringing friends, ringing people um, for support, really, and um, people arrive at the house and. The local priest arrived and, and, you know, there's prayers being said. It's very, very surreal. Um, 
And, uh, and then I decided to walk. I decided that the only thing I could do was walk. And mm. a friend of mine walked with me for miles. We walked until it started to get light. Um, and it was all with this awful dread. It was this awful dread of what I had to do. And I, I really, really didn't know how I was going to tell um, Oliver. But we got back and, and, and it was well, suddenly the, the sunlight was there and uh, I didn't feel any better. <laughs> I had thought I might feel better when it was light, but I didn't. And uh, and so as I went up the stairs, everybody was waiting in silence downstairs to see what, you know, what was going to happen. Um, and he, he was he was extremely sweet. He looked at me and you could see his face quiver because he knew immediately something was wrong. Um, and I sat on the bed and bless him, he held his hands over my eyes and I, and he just said, don't cry, mummy, mummy, don't cry. Mm. They, they were his words. And I knew immediately that, that if that was the only thing I could do for him, yes. that's what I would do. Um, and then suddenly, so I just held his hands and I just, you know, expect, thankfully we, we, we um, were Catholic and we do go to church and Tony in particular was a strong Catholic and he'd often said prayers at night with Oliver and so I was able to do daddy's, you know, daddy hasn't, daddy's not going to come back, daddy's gone to heaven and, you know, it was, it's a very difficult thing to say, some people might say it's the wrong thing but at the time I couldn't think of anything else to say other than, you know, um, he can't, he's gone away, he, he didn't want to leave us, but he's had to, he's got, you know, he's got work to do, you know, in heaven, and the, the things that, you know, just came out of my mouth, really, and, and I said, but if we look out at the stars, you know, we'll be able to see Daddy, and uh, and it was, he was silent for a little while, and then he just, his little face was quivering, but there was no tears, and he just looked at me, and he said, okay, and he said, Mummy, um, do I have to go to school today? And I went, <laughs> No, all of that. No, no, you don't. You don't, sweetheart. No school today. And then, can I go downstairs? So I picked him up and he sort of said, but mummy, mummy, will you help me look for the largest star? Can we look for daddy tonight? And uh, and that was it. Brought him downstairs. Everybody's staring at him. Um, he went and climbed on one of our friend's knees, sat there and said, um, can I watch the cartoons now? And uh, that was his way. I left the room, was violently sick, I can remember. Um but then that was just that was just the start, really. That was the worst thing I'd had to do. But it was the start of lots and lots of other problems that um, that went with Tony's death. Um, so, so you talk in the book about being hidden strength. So, so, so talk to me more about that. Do you think people all have hidden strength, or were you sort of yeah, unique in some way? So, uh, no, I don't think I'm unique. I think we all have it. I think I think somewhere within us. I mean, if somebody had said to me a day before, you know, you're going to have to deal with this, and and you're going to have to deal with lots of problems now. You're going to have, you know, you you will have to deal with some unreal situations. I just said, there's no way I, I can't possibly do that. I just couldn't have imagined myself doing some of the things I, I later had to do. Mm. Um, but you do, and I think when when we talked about the the shock and that feeling of not being able to breathe and gradually that as, as I think gradually I think for me there was a light bulb moment when I was in Spain and I was walking on the beach and just walking and walking fully clothed and suddenly I began to be able to breathe again and I started to talk and talk to my friend and talk and talk and talk about what I was going to do and up until then I'd been very silent I was taking it all in but yes. didn't really know how to deal with things and it was as if there was a, a release inside and um I suddenly knew. I said, I have to, you know, I'll go home, I'll sort the business out, and I'll make sure the boys, that my main priority is the boys. And um, and that's what I did. And literally, I arrived back at the hotel to, for my sister-in-law to come running down, saying, 
um, something terrible has happened. And after I, I remember thinking, what what more could have happened? And she said, uh, they've frozen all they've frozen all your accounts at the offices, the um, the SRA. So it was our, our our firm was a firm of solicitors. But my husband was a sole practitioner. Right. Um, and so um, what I hadn't realised was that because he was a sole practitioner, that the SRA, which regulates um, solicitors, could go in and literally shut us down because he was gone. And if they'd have intervened, it would have been all sorts of problems. So all our, all our bank accounts were frozen, um, all sorts of issues. Um, uh, staff would have all lost their jobs. I probably could have lost the house due to insurance reasons. And there was an awful lot of issues that people don't realise, and I didn't at the time. But I just remember um, replying to my, my sister-in-law then, oh, I'll deal with them when I get back. And um, and that's how I was, you know, suddenly the strength became, began to get there and I dealt with one problem at a time. Uh, but it is there and, and I think there's lots of times you have to do it. I mean, I, I go on, that's how I start my book, then I go on to sort of, you know, lots of things that I then have to deal with throughout my life and I do have to. You know, I have to go really out of my comfort zone and deal with things I don't want to deal with. But, you you know, you do find no matter how difficult things are, there is always an answer. And I think that is the for me, if I go walking or even sitting in the church or sitting on a bench somewhere, you know, some, that, that answer will come. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's really my story. <laughs> so, so that's interesting. So you've talked quite a lot about comfort zones and which is often described as a sort of fear, isn't it? So. So how do you get the energy, how do you get the strength to sort of say, well, I'm going to face that fear and and conquer it? Do you know, I don't, I don't actually know, other than, other, other than just, it just naturally comes. And as I say, it, would, it, it probably is when you least expect it, when, when you do just sit there, sit quietly or walk on the beach or walk in the garden. I just think it's it's a time when the, the panic sort of, uh, for me, the panic leaves my body and I start thinking more rationally. The rational ideas come into my head. Um, and uh, it, it, it's just to say, I, I, with everybody, there is always an answer. And I know lots of people um, think, you know, I, I couldn't deal with that. But I, I think, you know, deep down, there is, you know, within us all, there is that strength to do it. And it's interesting. I mean, you you talked, you you keep mentioning this idea that you go for walks, and this idea of exercise, you know, actually helping your brain to to reduce the amount of negative energy in your body is really important, isn't uh, it? Because it does sort of cleanse the cleanse the, um, the emotional side of it. I think they actually call it mindfulness now. It wasn't, do, yeah. it wasn't a name for it years ago, and I and you know now it's what what people are told to do, yeah. um, is to go walking and to um, and just think. You know, it's just quietly think things through yourself because now. I think the bad side of that is I have come a, become a little bit of a control freak and my, my new partner actually says I never tell him when I have a problem or if there's something wrong I actually go off and think about it myself and deal with it and I think that's probably that's probably a bad side effect from having to deal with things I didn't want to deal with um, I find it now difficult to sort of um, I feel the need to actually sort things out myself whatever it is now so I think that's probably a bad side of it well it's not a bad side it's just a no. side isn't it it's just a thing yeah yeah um, but it's interesting isn't it so so what you're saying is you you found your own inner strength but you said it was there anyway and actually you're implying that actually most people have this but it's completely untested that's right you don't know you have it it's tested until till something awful happens and that's when you that's when you find it and uh um you know, and as I say now, you, there are lots of um, there are lots of not not so much therapists, but there are lots of coaches and people and mindfulness people that actually talk you through these things to try and help you find that inner strength. 
um, to deal with things. And, uh, and that's what I actually feel quite, when I, when I, I, I it actually reassures me that what I, did, I was doing the right things anyway, um, even though there's no, no one there telling me what to do. <clears throat> and it's interesting because a lot of people, it's interesting what you just said about your current partner, but what you seemed to do at the time was you reached out for support. And that idea of, you know, reaching out for support, asking other people for help, it's its making yourself vulnerable in a way is actually where the beginning of strength can come from, isn't it? Because it makes you open to yeah, other I people. Yeah, th I think that, that first day, I, when I phoned, I, I needed to tell people what had happened. So I needed everyone to know. But deep down, I knew very quickly that it was only me that could deal with everything. It was only me that could tell all of that. It was only me that could deal with the issues at the office. There was nobody else physically there to do it. So it became... And I think that's when I started to breathe again. Up until then, I was letting people just make decisions for me for, you know, for several hours and whatever. And suddenly it was, no, I can do this now. And this is what I'm going to do. So there's, a, uh, there's an interesting balance, isn't there, between getting help and support from other people, but also being polluted by other people and their needs and their emotional yeah. drama almost and, you know, genuine grief and such like. And it's, it's how you manage that balance as part of, this, part of, the, um, part of the challenge here, isn't it? It is. It is a challenge. I mean, there was there's certain issues like, as I say, my 15-year-old son had been due to go away the following day to Spain, as it was. Of course, he didn't. But then I said to him, you know, do you want, you know, do you want to come with me? It's the only chance if you'd want to see daddy again, it's the only chance you will get. Would you like to come with me? Um, it's entirely up to you. And I know quite a few of my friends said, oh, but he's too young. He's only 15. How, how will he cope? And, I, you know, well, there's, there's no easy way. And I said, it's, it has to be his decision uh, of whether, he, you know, he wants to come. But I gave him that decision and, and he did come. And he, it was, um, he, had, he did, grow, it, that evening he grew up overnight. But he, he also wanted to. He also wanted to be part of, be there for me, really. It was a little bit of a role reversal at times. Um, for instance, my sons, my sons both are, are dyslexic. I mean, they're incredibly bright and, you know, they're both, you know, shone. But at the time, um, I can always remember thinking I'd always wanted my sons to read. And, and um, so I can remember being on the aeroplane with Anthony at 15 and he was deep in a book and reading away. And I'd lost all my concentration. And I was like, why is he reading now? I don't want him to read. And, uh, and, and I sort of said, you know, and he just looked at me and said, Mommy, it's... Um, we can't change this situation. I know we're both really sad, but we can't change it. Uh, and I can promise you, I'm not going to turn into a delinquent overnight. Um, but we're going to have to just deal with it. And he burst the buzzer and said to the air hostess, please, can you get my mother a glass of wine? <laughs> and he was suddenly, he was like, he's grown up. Um, and, you know, he was, he was, he was incredible. And he, he was an absolute, and he, and he still is now, both of my boys I'm extremely proud of. And I think that is the other reason why I'm writing, you know, why I did, did the book and told my story because the boys have been tremendous and they are my biggest achievement to date. They are, you know, seeing them grown to these lovely young men. They've never made any excuses for losing their, their you know, their father. Um, we talk about him all the time and, um, but I've always said it's not an excuse. You know, this is a really awful thing that's happened to us all. But, you know, um, and, and we did. We all were, in fact, we, we, instead of some families can fall apart, we didn't. We, we drew together and, um, and, you know, we are fine, which is, um, which is all I, you know, ever wanted. And uh, I'm very, very grateful for. It's mm, interesting. Mm. So it's interesting I, was, I, I wrote down when we were chatting it's, it's fascinating how we very very very, very rarely talk, think about the whole post-death thing don't we and uh, there's two things appeal to, uh, 
sort of occurred to me. One which is, I know when I lost someone recently, the, the help you need is not at the time of the funeral. It's sort of much later, isn't it? When, when, when sort of people all vanish, everyone's very concerned about that time, but you're already fully engaged with the process. It's sort of, it's sort of months later when things start to strike you and anniversaries start to happen and, and the echoes start to roll down through the ages. Sometimes you need a different sort of strength for that, I wonder. I, I think for me um, that that was that was very difficult, um, and in fact, I did I did become a different person quite quickly because um, I had to throw myself into the office. Thankfully, the RS, um, the SRA um, allowed me to continue running the office until I found a buyer. But it did mean that I, I was away from home a lot, and as I said at the beginning, um, that's where it was great having my mum here, um, yeah. and she was she was based here, so. She, she did an awful lot, but I literally, they lost me overnight. I'd always worked, but I always worked school hours, running the, I ran, I ran, I ran the office, um, I did all the management, the accounts, but I was always there at school time. So, um, and I felt very much they lost mum and dad for a while um, because I was there. I had to throw my F in, but you know, in some ways I, I can say it, that I actually was quite happy being away from the home at times because I could forget I could, when I, when I came home, I suddenly realised I'd be, I, I the grief would suddenly engulf me again, um, especially when the boys were not there. When the boys were there, I was always very I, I tried to be cheerful all the time, especially for Oliver. But when when perhaps they when they stayed at friends or whatever, they were the evenings where I'd probably just huddle up in a ball and um, you know disintegrate into tears when nobody nobody could see me. And that was probably the months later, as you say, when, you know, when people have all gone back to their own lives and, and you're the one left. And, yeah, and, you know, this is still the situation. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, and, and, and really, it's, it's quite peculiar, isn't it? Because there's only one way to deal with it. And you just have to go through it. Yes, I mean, they talk it. about grief yeah. being a process. And, and, and it really is true, isn't it? I mean, and people underestimate um, the oh. fact that everybody goes through it at their own speed. You know, you can't suddenly speed up or slow down. It's not about getting your grip. It's not about pulling yourself together. It is just literally how long that process takes. Absolutely. And, you know, I think for my boys, they've both um, spoken about it to me since. I mean, we all, we always, as I say, we always, I always kept Tony alive in the house. We always talked about him a lot. And, um and always, not not in, always in funny ways. Sometimes some of the funny things he did, not always didn't make him into some brilliant saint. It was always some of the you know the, the funny things we did together. Um, and the other thing I did, I actually I actually had a cup made that where where he actually died. Um, this competition is run every three years by the Law Society, and uh, in fact, only last week um, I was out there with one of my sons presenting the cup um, for for. Um, this particular event again so uh wow. i've the memory ongoing um yeah. but the boys i think the boys say from their point of view anthony the older one anthony always says that you know he he was a he, he was about to change schools anyway he he made new friends he was just about to start a job and the grief didn't hit him it didn't sort of wipe him out then but it, it's been these years since when he when he graduated you know birthdays christmas all those times and it, he he talks about grief dripping in he always finds it it drips in around him it's always there at those times mm. and uh, and my younger son um he he was the real daddy's boy and um I think it's been interesting, um, I mentioned the book again, but he actually is really enjoying, he's actually away travelling at the moment before he starts his job, and uh, 
he actually took the book with him and he, he keeps messaging me and saying, I didn't know that and I didn't know that and I don't remember that. And, and for him, he said, it's quite nice because it, it's as if it was happened to somebody else, but it actually happened to him. Um, and he's now starting to understand things a little bit better, things he was protected from. So, yeah, it's, it's been quite an interesting journey. And so why the book? Why the book? Um, well, because I was I was asked to do it. As I say, I was asked to do it, um, and I thought, well, if it can help somebody else, um, then then certainly my experience, if they can draw from it, draw some strength from it, it's worth it. Um, and as I say, um, the, um, the all the proceeds from the book are actually going to charity anyway, which I'm, I'm setting up myself to help young people that are dealing with and coping with um, bereavement. So hopefully it will do some good. Um, so yes, and I think it's been good for me because I, I, I probably didn't I probably didn't grieve properly at the time. I was too busy getting on with things, and I think actually writing this book it only took me a couple of months to do it um, because it was all there. I didn't have to, uh, but it opened a lot of boxes I probably closed. Um, and yeah, I think I actually feel I probably feel a lot better for doing it myself. That's interesting, isn't it? So it's a lot, a lot of people talk about writing being cathartic, don't they? And um you know, sort of journaling and such like. Uh, again, you know, we used to call it mindfulness for something. Now we call it yeah. journaling. But it's it it is a it is a thing to be able to write things down and and to be able to face and remember things and to and to be able to sort of see it as a testament in a way. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And um, strangely enough, on the same um, sort of within a month of me being asked to do it, I was also asked to be part of another book, which is uh, Women of Spirit. Um, ordinary ordinary women extraordinary lives and they they asked if they could put me in as a chapter and I was I was really quite you know you know well you know this has happened to me but I don't find it that you know extraordinary it's it's what you do you survive it have you know think bad things happen to people all the time and you know but you just get on with it um and but obviously you know obviously it was when I look at it now it probably was everything was you know everything was quite bad um but no, but I, I feel, I mean, life now is great and I do have an awful lot to be thankful for. And I think that's that's the main reason of doing the book. And hopefully other people will see that. Brilliant. Well, I think um, hearing inspirational stories is brilliant because actually I think we all get strength. It's like, the, you know, many, you know, thousands of years ago when we used to sit around the campfire and hear other people's story. I think we can all use it as part of our own memory, but also part of our knowing that we can survive as well, a bit like a bit like your mum was able to do. Yes, yeah. And I mean, um, you know, and you've already alluded to the fact that you sound as if eventually you found somebody else. And so that's that's yes, lovely, yeah. isn't it? You know, you know, having love again in your life is a lovely thing. Absolutely. And what was so lovely really about that was that um he was a real he was a real help to Oliver. It was a couple of years later, Oliver was still was struggling really. He was missing the male, having the male around and uh he sort of chose um my partner Phil um because Phil is a he's an underwater scuba diver and he, he films underwater as that that's that's the part of the job he enjoys. He does other things as well. But uh and my son was just completely, um, he gave him a shark's tooth and told him all about diving and underwater things. And it gave, it sort of brought the spark back into my son's eyes. And, you know, by the age of, um, by the age of 10, he was one of the youngest um, advanced scuba divers in the, in, in, in the world. He got a Blue Peter badge for it. And I think, you know, everything happens for a reason. And uh, certainly Phil was very um, instrumental in, in Oliver's recovery because that's how he used his, That I think that's how, what he then channeled his energy in was um, into diving. And uh, yeah, he's, um, yeah. 
So I have. I, I think I just have been very lucky that the way my life has turned out. Do you know what? I don't think it's luck. <laughs> but isn't it lovely to hear about a positive role model? I mean, the old we we men get a bit of a bashing at the moment, but positive Absolutely. role models for children are you know as are positive female models. They're, it, they're it all is. part of the mix. It, it is important, and I can remember um, I can remember when Oliver went for I did take him for some therapy, and um, and you know it, it's funny how children think because the lady that the um, therapist that was talking to him said you know said oh you know I've had a sad time my doggy has died and you know and Oliver went well are you getting a new one and she went well not quite yet <laughs> you know I'll give it some time and um, and, he, and and he sort of said well I don't know I don't think I want a new daddy. Um, and uh, but it, it was it was strange. It was his introduction. It was him that wanted me to sort of, you know, suddenly sort of three years on. It was him that said, oh, you must, you know, and he was he was the instigator behind it, really. So, um, yeah, I think it's needed. I, I think definitely. And I, I do think um, I mean, Tony will never he's never replaced, obviously. Um, and as I say, we remember him all the time. But um, um, it is nice that, that Oliver's been able to to build up normal relationships with males, which is, you know, which has been very important to him. Mm. So, um, Tracy, how do we get hold of this book of yours? Okay, so it's on Amazon. It's only £7.99, but uh, it, all, it all is going, it's on Amazon, or I can be emailed directly, um, you know, or via my website, which is just my name. Um, but as I say, all the money, it, it is going to... Um, to for, for to actually purchase memory we're buying memory boxes which we're sending out to hospices and doctor services schools um but they're also um living memory boxes too which are being worked on between parents and um parents with um chronic and, and terminal illnesses to actually work with their own children um i just feel it's really important i i did a memory box with with oliver and it was something the that that not many people did back then and you can get them but people have to pay for them you know throughout charity so I just thought it was a nice thing I'd written this book and might as well use the money that that is a nice thing to use the money for to benefit others brilliant Tracy I think you've been an inspiration thank you so much for spending time with us today I think um you know it's a it's quite a story and um thank you for sharing it thank you you take care useful if you did why not subscribe and listen to our other podcasts we would love it if you could leave us a review to access our resilience coaching contact us at info at qedod.com and finally if you'd like to download our free resilience ebook go to qedod.com slash free ebook thanks for listening